Hello and welcome to another installment of 2017 Draft Strategy on 444 Fantasy Football's Most Accurate Podcast. This is the 10th chapter, I believe, in this is a bonus series that I've been doing with some of my favorite analysts. Uh, today's guest is a co-worker of mine, a colleague. Uh, his name is Chris Raybon. You can find him on Twitter at Chris Raybon. He's a senior daily fantasy editor at 444.com. He's also the co-host with uh, TJ Hernandez of the DFS MVP uh, podcast, which is excellent. You can find that on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, so thanks for coming on, Chris. Thanks for having me, John. Happy to be back. Yes, it's been a busy few weeks for us with the whole rollout over at SI.com. Now we're getting settled in here, hopefully ramping up towards the season, getting a chance to really refine our draft strategies. So um, initially, I just want to ask you, uh, is there anything that you are seeing in 2017 drafts and your mocks and your MFL 10s uh, that maybe you're not seeing in other years uh, in terms of positional depth, uh, strategies that are working, strategies that aren't working? Yeah, I think what's interesting is the wide receiver position, especially in PPR, the wide receiver twos and wide receiver threes. If you even look at our projections on four for four, you have the wide receiver 11 and the wide receiver 30th separated by about maybe one point, one and a half points per game. So there's a lot of depth in that middle tier. And the thing about it is some of those receivers Stephon Diggs, Willie Sneed, Pierre Garçon, those guys are going in the fifth, sixth, seventh round of certain drafts, depending on what site you're playing on. So that's a situation where I'm kind of looking at it as, okay, sometimes I will kind of take a bottom up approach in my draft strategy and say, okay, I know I'm going to be able to secure some wide receiver value in these fourth, fifth, sixth rounds. And it might lead me to either take an extra running back that I maybe wouldn't have otherwise felt comfortable taking a shot at in the back half of the first or early second round, or maybe I'll go with a Gronk or a Kelsey or a Reed at tight end or a Brady or a, or a Rogers or something like that, just because I'm really confident in some of that middle round wide receiver value. Yeah. It sounds like uh, you're seeing what uh, several of the analysts that have come on are seeing, but you phrased it in a different way because you're, you're talking about specifically the wide receiver depth um, you know, third round drop off, those receivers in the third round don't look that much different than the receivers in the fifth or sixth or, you know, even the seventh round, if depending on how much you like some of those middle round guys. And, um, I think what you're talking about with the tight end, maybe, uh, Kelsey there in the third round, Gronk maybe in the second round. Uh, how, how important do you think with the wide receiver drop off would it be to get a stud or two at the receiver position? I think that it's, I think it's actually more of a drop off at running back to me. Like I think, I think because once you're getting, I think Odell and Julio and Antonio Brown are in one tier, and then you have that next tier with Jordy and and Michael Thomas and AJ Green and Mike Evans. But after that, it kind of levels out a little bit because, especially with Andrew Luck, you have that the T.Y. Hilton, um, you know, T.Y. Hilton Andrew Luck situation. We don't know what's going on there, and then you know, Doug Baldwin's always going to be who he is. Des Bryant, tough schedule a little bit. Um, DeAndre Hopkins is a guy that I'm. Going to probably fade mostly in drafts just because looking at what has happened with the Texans over the last three years, Bill O'Brien's scheme has been complex. And as the quarterback has gotten younger and younger and less experienced, offense has essentially fallen off a cliff, trended down every year in terms of points, in terms of yards per play. So with Savage and and um, and Watson, I don't know if that's going to change this year. So I, I'm, I'm kind of just aiming for those those two stud running backs and almost trying to say, okay, well, I might not have a stud wide receiver 
but I can I can make that up in those middle rounds by just kind of hammering the position probably three three through six or four through seven. Okay, so one of the things you just mentioned there was the Houston uh, quarterback situation. I, th- I believe I read that in your uh, three key fantasy football facts about every team's NFL team's offense article, which we're going to go over today. We're going to actually hit them position by position uh, and talk about uh, you know some quarterback stuff first, then running back, the wide receiver, and then tight end at the end. These are these are stats or trends or tendencies that uh, Chris has dug up. Um, in his off-season research, and they're re- I was reading through it today, and it's just excellent stuff. Uh, so it's three key fantasy football facts about every NFL team's offense. If you Google that, you'll end up finding it. I'll also tweet it out uh, again after uh, we post the pod. But let's start with the quarterback position. Um, you, you were talking a little bit in there about uh, Tom Brady, uh, the acquisition of Brandon Cooks, uh, maybe indicating that they're going to uh, go past happy uh you know, coupled with uh, some what their running backs can do, they're a little bit more versatile than than Legarrette Blunt. Uh, do you do you feel like he might be in for a career year? I think so. I I think this year is as good as any for him. They made an effort to get running backs who can play out of the shotgun more. Even though Mike Gillisley, for example, isn't a good pass catcher necessarily he can play out of the shotgun um predominantly did that last season and then they got Burkhead they still have White and Lewis and you know Cooks now in the fold Rob Gronkowski uh, I think we're kind of maybe even underestimating him and the fact that the missed games are they're going to happen but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to miss another eight games this year. And if he plays 13 to 15 games and then you have Brandon Cooks on top of that, I don't see why Brady can't match his career best year. Yeah, and, and Gronk's actually healthy going into the season this year, which is which is a nice change. Um, second round seems like reasonable for him. But, uh, okay, moving on to Washington, uh, Kirk Cousins. Uh, you write that his attempts might be down, but his red zone efficiency might be up. Why do you say that? Well, Pierre Garçon and Deshaun Jackson last year not very good in the red zone two of 24 in terms of turning red zone targets into touchdowns so Kirk Cousins had a very good year but his touchdown rate was actually lower last year than it was the year before he threw only 25 on 606 attempts last season after throwing 29 on just 546 the year before the Redskins went out and they made an effort to get a big guy in Terrell Pryor and Jay Gruden has talked about getting him the football in the red zone. You're going to you're gonna see Jordan Reed. You're going to see Vernon Davis out there. And I just think with bigger bodies and more adept red zone receivers that Kirk Cousins could push for, for 30 touchdowns, even if his pass attempts come down a little bit. All right, moving on to Pittsburgh. Uh, ben Roethlisberger has long uh, been a – well, I don't know if it's long, but the splits – the recent splits, I guess, in, in, on the road have been pretty bad, but – the one reason I'm really excited about him this year is that he's got Martavis Bryant back, and the, and the numbers are pretty stark. Do you want to go over those splits? Yeah, so when since 2014, when Martavis came in the league, Ben has averaged 276 passing yards per game without him, but when he's in the lineup, that jumps to 337 passing yards per game. Uh, Ben's yards per attempt jumps from 7.95 to 8.39. With Martavis in the lineup and his touchdowns per game passing jump from 1.78 to 2.11. So, and his, and, and what's more important is his attempts per game actually jump up by five from 35.5 to 40.5, which indicates to me that when the Steelers have a healthy Martavis Bryant to complement 
Antonio Brown out there. They are a lot more aggressive in throwing the football, and it's led to some really big numbers for Big Ben. So I think he's a quarterback that you still have to be careful with on the road, but he's one, he's probably worth at least drafting just for his, just for his home games. Cause he has that six touchdown upside that we've seen. Yeah. I was, I was looking at uh, Roethlisberger's schedule and there's about five games. I, I don't know them off the top of my head that you would try to avoid, you know, tougher road, tougher road games. And I was trying to find the, the quarterback that uh, fit best um, with that, with that schedule by looking at our uh, adjusted fancy points allowed. Unfortunately, it was Houston that came up number one. Uh, doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. Um, and then, uh, Joe Flacco, Baltimore came in number two. Uh, he's got uh, five pretty good matchups, uh, Pittsburgh, Chicago at Tennessee, Detroit, and then Indianapolis is the five games that uh, he's replacing, uh, and he would replace in Ben Roethlisberger's lineup. Of course, he's got the, uh, the back injury, but a couple of higher price guys that, that were in the top 11 were, uh, uh, Matt Ryan and, uh, Matthew Stafford. So if you're looking for, uh, maybe making a, building a committee out of those middle round guys, those, those might be two guys you could, uh, that uh, you could look at. Um, how about uh, Jameis Winston? I have, I, I looked at uh, Deshaun Jackson's splits uh, with, you know, over in uh, Philly and in uh, Washington. Uh, he, he really had a significant impact on the offense. I just want to highlight these real quick, and then you can talk about his fit with uh, Winston and that offense. But uh, when, when those teams had him in the lineup, the passing yards were 274. Uh, without it was 250 yards per attempt 7.8 uh, without 6.63 uh, touchdowns per game 1.58 with Deshaun 1.34 without and then the interesting thing was how much he impacted the rushing game uh, 123 yards uh, per game for the team with Deshaun Jackson in the lineup 98.7 without rushing TDs uh, 1.0 with Deshaun 0.62 without and then yards per carry uh, 4.6 with Deshaun 4.06 Without everything, there is a between a nine percent and a twenty five percent increase, except for the rushing TDs, which go up by sixty uh, percent or so. Uh, what do you make of this? I think that Deshaun, first of all, he's a proven quarterback stat enhancer, which is what I wrote about um, in the second blurb of Tampa Bay. When he was in line with Kirk Cousins, I mean, a, a yard per attempt more, uh, nearly. And the one thing I'm I'm thinking about Deshaun is that. I don't know if Jameis is necessarily worth this like quarterback six seven ADP that he's had in certain sites. I think he's going kind of right after those more established studs because one thing that happened last year was in the first few weeks of the season, the first three games, he he, he threw sixty seven percent of the time, and then. From then on, Dirk Cutter really dialed it back. They went to a slower-paced attack, a lot more run-heavy, even though the run game wasn't really working at all. Remember, Doug Martin under three yards per carry, but Tampa Bay only threw it 55.1% of the time. And I think that these additions of Deshaun and O.J. Howard have a lot of people thinking Winston's passing stats are just going to explode, but... I think they're actually going to help in the run game a lot, and that might actually be a reason um, they were acquired too, so Dirk Cutter could continue to to call these running plays for his for his young Bucks offense because Deshaun is gonna he's gonna make the safety stay back, so you can't you can't creep up as close to the line of scrimmage, and OJ Howard is one of the better run blocking tight ends, uh, so I think I think. You have to have a little bit of caution there with that really high ADP. I'd like to get him more so in that 10 to 12 or outside it range than, than start creeping up into the 6-7 range. 
Yeah, the other thing uh, with those splits that I pulled was that the passing attempts uh, with Deshaun, 35.1 without 37.8. So they actually threw more uh, with without Deshaun in the lineup. And then rushing attempts, 26.8 with him, 24.3. Uh, without him, so they ran the ball, uh, you know, two and a half times less per game. So that goes right in line with what uh, you're talking about there, and that might be a, a you know a bonus for Doug Martin slash Jaquiz Rogers uh, for for owners who want to maybe do a a tag team with those two, or just target uh, Jaquiz Rogers at the end of the draft or twelfth round, tenth round. Uh, his ADP is rising a little bit, but um, it bodes well in terms of the running game for Tampa, given the addition of Jackson uh, stretching the field there. Uh, let's move on to Marcus Mariota, who's a, he's a quarterback that I have in my top five. I think I'm in the minority there, uh, in the fantasy industry. Uh, but, uh, his per game averages have been very impressive to me. Uh, the issue has been staying healthy. And if he's able to, uh, do that, I think he, he'll have a, you know, career year and, and he has, he's a real threat to finish in the top, uh, half of the, the QB one ranks. So, uh, you also seem to like, uh, what the offseason moves mean for for him. Uh, you want to go over that a little bit? Yeah. Well, the Titans have been one of the most run-heavy teams with Mariota. They've had a 47.2% run play rate last year, which was third in the league. So they could really use uh, – well, Mariota could really use for his fantasy – numbers just more pass attempts because he's been very efficient he's been one of the most efficient red zone quarterbacks in the league in fact the most efficient in terms of turning touchdowns uh his attempts in a touchdown so and the titans only threw the ball the 25th most uh, to- uh percentage in the red zone last year so there's just a lot of room for growth for Mariota, and i think Judging by the offseason moves, them going out and getting a Corey Davis, even though they probably could have easily used that pick to continue to improve their defense, given how well Matthews played last year and that they still have Walker. They went out and got Corey Davis. They, they got Taewon Taylor. So, and then they got Decker, which is another seemingly like a luxury pick for them. They have, they have Henry, they have Murray, so they're always going to have a run game that's a threat. Their O line is pretty good. I think this is the year where they, they're going to, let him take a step forward. And if he just gets maybe another 50 attempts or so over what he got last year, he could really explode. Yeah. He's one that I've been taking sometimes in the eighth, ninth round when he's there kind of going away from the late, late round. I mean, that's a fairly late round pick in the scheme of things, but uh, I've been going Dalton, uh, Matthew Stafford later, but he's one that I sort of, when he's there in eighth, ninth round, that's pretty attractive pick there because you're adding him to a team that's already got, uh, three or four receivers, three or four running backs, maybe a tight end. And now you can add who I have ranked as a top five quarterback to the mix. I, I really like that uh, there in the in the middle rounds. Uh, I mentioned Dalton. Um, you talked a little bit about, in, in this article, I talked a little bit about some caution for him in the red zone. Uh, I do like the uh, you know return of A.J. Green. Hopefully he's healthy. Dalton's splits with A.J. in the lineup are great. Uh, they added John Ross as a 4.2 to 40-yard uh, dash uh, speed type guy, uh, which loosens some things up as well. And then they add Joe Mixon as well in the draft. But the, but the O-line's a concern, right? Yeah, and that's kind of why I'm pretty cautious on Dalton. I mean, I don't think there's a lot of separation between many of these late-round quarterbacks that you're going to get from the, say, 12th to 20th pick. I mean, you got Carson Palmer, and you got Dalton, and you got Eli, and I mean, Tyrod Taylor, even though the passing, you know, game is kind of 
collapsing. He can still run. So there's all these guys. There's not really a lot of separation, but I'm kind of pumping the brakes on Dalton a little bit just because he's notoriously bad at dealing with pressure. And this is going to be the first year where his offensive line is probably going to be one of the uh, league's worst units. We're used to it being one of the league's best units. And then there's just, it's kind of tough for me to see him exploding because they have not really been willing to throw the ball in the red zone a lot. They rank 28th or lower in red zone pass play rate each season since 2014. Um, and, you know, he hasn't been practicing with, with Ross as much. And that's something I always kind of look at with quarterbacks and rookie receivers is how much time did they get in the offseason? And John Ross is, of course, healing up from his injury. So I'm kind of skeptical that it's going to be just going back to Andy Dalton, kind of getting in this top five, top eight quarterback mix. And again, and we also have to think about as good as Tyler Eifert has been, his red zone touchdown rate is just so ridiculous that he's got to regress at some point because it's, I mean, he's just converting touchdowns at a ridiculous pace. So I'm kind of, you know, really lukewarm on Dalton. I'd rather go other directions with the late round quarterback. Okay, so you mentioned late quarterback options. Maybe you want another one other than Dalton. Uh, Carson Palmer, you talked about in your article. You think he has a little bit of upside there uh, in the vertical scheme? Yeah, I think Carson Palmer, because of the way Bruce Arians calls that offense, they're just very vertical. They take a lot of risks. It leads to some variance in terms of the numbers from year to year, not only for Palmer, but for the, the receivers as well, aside from Larry Fitzgerald, just from week to week. So I think that uh, Palmer had a rough few, you know, opening games of the season and people maybe thought that, okay, he is going through some late career decline, but I don't really think that's what it is at all. I think that he just experienced some variance. I don't, John Brown not being in the lineup for a lot of the time helped because they're essentially using JJ Nelson as the uh, number two receiver at times. And he's just not really built for that. He's more of just a situational deep threat, only about five, six, five, seven, 160, 70 pounds. So I think if John Brown is actually able to stay in the lineup, I don't, I think, I think you will see a, a lot of good games from Palmer. He actually has a really good schedule to open the season for pretty good matchups. If you want to just completely wait till the end of your draft to get a quarterback, he's usually going around QB 20. So he probably won't get drafted. Yeah. And you can uh, stream him or you can have him for the first month and you start to stream as maybe the, uh, the schedule gets a little bit tougher and then we'll know more by four, you know, week four, whether or not Philly or Tampa Bay or the Rams, uh, his uh, week five through week seven schedule, whether or not those are those are tough matchups or not. Um, lastly, I want to ask you about uh, a guy I'm kind of warming to here later in August, and it's Sam Bradford. He's he's also has a, a nice opening schedule. He's got uh, New Orleans to start it. So if you're really wanting to to wait until the final rounds you draft to grab a guy, he's grab a guy. He's he's not a bad guy to grab. Um, his Pass attempts went up in the second half of the season, which is something I wasn't uh, completely aware of, but that's when Pat Sherman took over uh, as the offensive coordinator. Do you want to talk a little bit about how the offense changed uh, under Shermer? Yeah, so they essentially just went to 
more high percentage passes. Their passing rate went from 57% to 66%. And they're still, it's still a dink and dunk kind of situation, but it, it really helps PPR and it really helps the receivers actually because they're throwing so much and they're throwing so much underneath that these receivers can just rack up these catches. I mean, we saw Kyle Rudolph just how many catches he had last year. He was able to finish as a top five tight end, I believe, in PPR. And then you have Stephon Diggs, who only three touchdowns, and yet he was pretty high up in the wide receiver ranks as well. So, And Adam Thielen, I think, is a really good receiver. So I'm I'm fine with Bradford, too. Another quarterback where if you just want to ignore you quarterback the whole draft and just stock up on other positions and take a quarterback right before you take kicker and defense, you can take Bradford, play him in week one against New Orleans, and then reassess the situation, I think that's not a bad move at all. Yeah, I think in uh, two QB leagues, he's uh, a very interesting pick if you want to you know, draft your one quarterback fairly early and then wait a few rounds, several rounds, uh, and grab him in the middle rounds when you know the quarterback position is starting to dry, starting to dry up a little bit because I don't think his ADP is, is going to spike anytime soon. Um, let's talk about the running back position a little bit. Uh, Sean McCoy is an interesting player because, you know, heading into the off season or heading into the rankings process, I really, really liked him in terms of, you know, the production he had last year and, you know, continuing with a good running offense and, and everything. But all these changes that the, the bills are making here, uh, losing Sammy Watkins, I think hurts the running game a little bit. Um, and it just doesn't seem like uh, they're necessarily uh, trying to win, uh, I guess is the, what, what I'm trying to get at. So I'm, I'm wondering how much uh, LaShawn ends up playing here, you know, in the second half of the season, if, if the Bills are struggling and uh, to put up wins or don't want to put up wins and he's starting to get dinged up. I don't know if he's going to play. So I'm starting to get a little bit of worried about uh, LaShawn McCoy. Uh, you, you have some other worries about him. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm starting to see a lot of red flags too. Like yourself, I was really high on him. I thought he was kind of the consensus uh, top pick after the, the, the three of Zeke and Bell and DJ and the three ride receivers. But now McCoy is kind of just sunken into that next tier of running backs, you know, lumped in with the Ajayes and the Howards. And he might not even be on the top of that tier for me anymore. And that's because they're switching running schemes. So the new regime is going to more of a fullback centric running scheme. And that doesn't necessarily re- re- suit McCoy. He's averaged only 3.9 yards per carry in 114 carries under center with the bills. Whereas he's averaged 4.9 yards a carry out of the shotgun. And he set a career high last year in the, the scheme they had last year. And now it's going to change. And as if we couldn't, expect regression enough from the 5.4 yards per carry last year we're also looking at regression three of the last five years he scored exactly five touchdowns and then the other two years he's had double digits so I mean can we really expect another double digit touchdown year especially given as you mentioned just how uh, bad this passing offense may be I mean Tyrod Taylor 6.3 yards per attempt without Sammy Watkins's career 8.8 with him so that's a big loss for the Bills I'm I'm kind of worried about about shady here yeah and then the the loss of mike gillisley would seem to open up some some extra red zone goal line carries uh for mccoy but who knows if those carries are going to be there i think that's what you're getting at i mean their their opportunity may drop and that may uh also impact mccoy in terms of whatever upside he had from from gillisley leaving um moving on to the to the rams which is this is a really interesting situation because i feel like with the preseason 
kind of unfolding the way that it has. Jared Goff looked pretty good in the last uh, preseason game, actually looked really good from most accounts. And, you know, maybe I'm underestimating just how bad the it was scheme wise as opposed to talent wise uh with the rams last year uh, i mean Goff's the, the passing game was just one of historically one of the worst uh that i've seen or witnessed in terms of numbers and when i look at it in the offseason so uh there is a lot of room for improvement they added uh, sammy watkins uh and uh, cooper cup uh, in the passing game maybe jared goff starts to play up to his draft position a little bit more and the reason we're talking about this during the running back section is because uh, Todd Gurley, there's a little bit of optimism about him. I mean, the offensive line, they didn't do much to address it. I think they're hoping that the scheme or uh, coaching is going to make, be the difference there. But um, th- there seems to be some reasons for optimism with Todd Gurley. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think the Rams are a team that I'm probably more bullish on than most analysts just because I've been I've been really kind of looking into what the hell happened to them last year and what what they're going to do differently this year and I think number one we can't underestimate how much of an impact Sean McVay is going to make he's the youngest head coaching hire ever he's in he's a he's a he's a a genius essentially um, on the offensive side of the ball. And then he's coming in for somebody in Jeff Fisher. That was literally the worst. I mean, just, just completely incompetent toward the end of his, of his tenure there. And the thing about Gurley, why I'm optimistic. I, I have him in that tier with, with McCoy, with, with Ajay, with Devontae Freeman and all those guys is, we saw the upside already and we saw it in his rookie year right off the bat. So I think that with running backs, we always talk about how things like yards per carry is very un, it's unreliable from year to year. And what that tells me is that running back production, it's, it's very fragile. The, the efficiency, something, one, a couple of things can change and everything can just go down the drain. I mean, we saw it with Thomas Rawls as well last year where the Seahawks, you know, the year before he led the league in yards per carry. Then last year, the Seahawks offensive line just, it gets so bad that he can't even, you know, it just, it just completely collapses and his, his efficiency goes in the gutter. I mean, Doug Martin, we've seen him go from, you know, brilliant seasons to at under three yards per carry. So I don't think we can read too much into, to, to last year with Gurley. And I think McVeigh, he's going to use him. He's using him more in the passing game, splitting him out wide, putting him in a slot. Uh, they're apparently installing like run pass options for Goff so he can check out of running against loaded boxes, which I don't know why that wasn't an option before, but I'm pretty optimistic on Gurley. Uh, I think he has a pretty good chance at being that running back that everyone's kind of wants a Jaye or Howard or some of those guys to be that are going before him. I think he could end up being that that guy that ends up coming in behind Le'Veon and behind DJ in terms of that top five. Yeah, and people should remember that, you know, Benny Cunningham is gone now. He was eating into uh, Gurley's uh, catches involvement in the passing game. Uh, they did sign Lance Dunbar to sort of fill that role, but he's dealing with a with an knee injury and a Late, the latest on him is that he is quote uh, is out indefinitely with the knee injury. So as, as usual, so uh, it, you know things are looking good from Gurley from a workload standpoint. I think if if, you, if the efficiency is able to climb a little bit for the Rams, uh, then you could see him back in those RB one. You know, consistently finishing in the RB one ranks, which would be nice uh, for those owners who uh, take a risk on him in the second or third uh, second or third round. What about? Uh, Lamar Miller, he's been sliding down my rankings just a little bit. Uh, I, I can see that you're uh, worried about his uh, his usage there in Houston. 
Yeah, he just went from kind of a really sexy pick last year to just this completely unsexy pick this year. Bill O'Brien said he wants to scale back his workload. Miller, you know, O'Brien's historically given a running back a lot of carries, 20 touches more than than almost any other coach over the last few years. And Miller had 21.4 touches per game. That was sixth in the league last season, but... He noticeably broke down, especially toward the end of the year. He was always limping in and out of games and kind of reminded me of C.J. Anderson a bit a couple years ago where he was in there, he was getting work, but he was just struggling through it. And with this offense kind of being uh, not necessarily looking on the way up just yet, again, I think it's going to take some time for these young quarterbacks. I just, I'm not excited about taking Miller in the third round. I don't think he's a bad pick just because, there's going to be a lot of uncertainty with a lot of these running backs going in the third round and on period. But I think projecting him for just the same workload as last year probably is not going to happen. Foreman eventually, you know, they drafted him. I'm sure at some point he'll he'll start to, to eat into that role. I don't think they're happy with Alfred Blue or, or anybody like that. So let's talk about one of my favorite players of all time, Danny Woodhead. Uh, he's... You write about him in your in your article about how his, his usage is going to be is probably going to be high, and I'll let you get into that. But I have noticed that his ADP really hasn't risen a whole lot. Seems like he's still going in that sixth round uh, PPR. He might go fifth round. I think maybe before that he was maybe going in the seventh, but I, not in any drafts I was in. Uh, I probably took him in the sixth or fifth. But uh, you know he's probably going to split that backfield with uh, Terrence West. Um, can you talk a little bit about the running game in Baltimore and what you're expecting to see uh, in terms of uh, workload for him? Yeah, I think a few things are interesting that, that are going on with the Ravens in the backfield. One is in eight of John Harbaugh's nine seasons, the the, Raven, the Ravens have finished in the top 10 in running back target rate. They've averaged a ranking of 5.6 out of 32. And a lot of that was Ray Rice, but they've seemingly been wanting to get back to that because if you remember in the offseason, Danny Woodhead was one of the more surprise signings where it just kind of came out of nowhere that he was going to the Ravens. That didn't seem like a team that he was necessarily going to be uh, in the running for him. So I think they really want to get back to, to throwing the ball to him. But overall, I think the Baltimore Ravens pass game volume is going to go down. And I think some people seem to be very um, bullish on um, just just the, the whole passing game because it's kind of really evened out with with Pitta out of the picture now and and, and whatnot. Where it's I think I see Macklin and, and Wallace going pretty high sometimes, but I, Greg Roman they hired him as an offensive assistant. Now he's not the OC, but any time he's had an offense, they've never finished higher than than 29th in pass attempts, and they've been really making an effort to commit more to the run after two straight seasons of leading the league in pass attempts, but being completely horrible at it. Like They weren't a good passing team, so I think they've kind of realized that, hey, we need to throw a little less, so I'm actually pretty bullish on Terrence West, I think. I think he's a pretty good stab when you're getting toward the the double digit rounds or a little earlier because the defense could be a little better this year. And if they're passing less and they're going to play more of that style where they're just going to use their running game, they're going to use Woodhead out the backfield. I think that Terrence West, I mean, he's got to have at least eight touchdown upside, um, perhaps 10 if he's going to he's going to get some decent even if Woodhead gets some red zone work. So. I think that running game is 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 going to be used a lot more for Baltimore this year. 
Oh yeah, I think uh, Terrence West, uh, his ADP has kind of risen into the eighth round. I think there was some concern that they would acquire another running back there, but that doesn't look like it's uh, going to happen. Uh, I don't think the other one guy was uh, rumored to be there or to maybe be signed there is Rashad Jennings. I don't think that's an upgrade over West at this point. So um, I, I like this as a value for both players, Danny Woodhead, especially in PPR and then Terrence West. I think he's decent in PPR as well, um, but maybe more of a, a threat and standard given the, the touchdown uh, upside there. Um, let's talk a little bit about Cleveland. Uh, Isaiah Crowell, uh, you know, had a nice year last year. I think we thought maybe uh, – or at least I did. I thought Duke Johnson might get more work in the running game, but they seemed like they really handed the keys over to Crowell. Uh, but they didn't run the ball a whole lot. Do you, you think there's some more upside there given uh, Hugh Jackson's tendencies? Yeah, Hugh Jackson normally likes to run the ball, but he just had to abandon it last season because it just broke. It literally just broke around week five. For the first four weeks of the season, Crowell was averaging 6.3 yards per carry on 15.3 carries per game. Then all of a sudden, from week five to through the buy in week uh, 13, he just sunk to 2.5 yards per carry, only got 10.3 carries per game. And that kind of coincided with one of their interior linemen, uh, Joel Betonio, going down for the, with a season-ending injury. So in the offseason, they go out and they sign Kevin Zeitler. They sign J.C. Treader. Um, two really good offensive linemen. They're getting Batonio back. They have a future Hall of Famer in Joe Thomas. So they have four really good offensive linemen. They project to have one of the best offensive lines in the league. I'm talking about it could challenge Cowboys or Raiders level this season. And I think that's just a really good situation for Crowell. He did a lot of damage on not much work. And the Browns have kind of shown that they – they really don't view Duke Johnson as a running back. I mean, he's out, and I like him for totally different reasons, but Duke Johnson has kind of been in the wide receiver meeting room. He's playing slot receiver. This could be Crowell's backfield, and any improvement in terms of their O-line and in terms of just their overall team improvement with game script could help Crowell a, a lot. Yeah, and just to touch on Duke Johnson, um, he is one, according to Joe Holka's uh, rushing expectation, that if something were to happen to Crowell, uh, he might be capable of taking on a three-down role there uh, in Cleveland and have a lot of upside for that reason. But he's obviously uh, a, a good draft pick from a PPR value standpoint because he's going pretty late. And um, they're talking about using him in the slot and uh, you know maybe building on that. Uh, his receptions from last year. So that's that's something to keep in mind with Duke Johnson. But it does look like Crowell is going to be the main ball carrier there as long as he's healthy. All right, and now I want to talk about uh, another article that you did. We're going to continue with this uh, the three stats uh, theme, but this one touches on the New England backfield and uh, your article, The Fantasy Value of Patriots Running Backs, Mike Gillisley, James White, Deion Lewis, and Rex Burkhead. Um, we have a situation now, maybe you want to summarize your, your position at the time of the article and, and how you're feeling about everything now. Uh, Mike Gillisley has been out for uh, three weeks, I think, with a, with a hamstring injury, and Rex Burkhead uh, seems to be trending up. His ADP is still in the double-digit round, so he's pretty cheap. Uh, Gillisley, I think, is going sixth, seventh round. It might be uh, dripping, uh, uh, dropping a little bit. Um, and then James White, ninth, tenth, eleventh round, PPR, uh, Deion Lewis going very, very late. Uh, talk a little bit about this backfield, how you think it's going to uh, shake out. Right. So when I initially wrote the article, this was before Gillis Lee was having the hamstring trouble. So essentially 
what I noticed was that Bill Belichick has been raving about Gillisley, and initially there was kind of no one knew what to make of it because Burkhead got signed first. So everyone kind of thought, okay, they signed Burkhead to be this, this lead back. And then, and then they signed Gillisley and he was just kind of a luxury. But what I think they were doing was Burkhead was, they wanted to sign him just to upgrade that Brandon Bolden role because the Patriots are one of the best teams in terms of roster construction that we've ever seen. And Brandon Bolden was like one of their only weaknesses where he was such a good special teams player, but not a good running back. So now they got this guy Burkhead. We saw him, you know, go crazy in week 17. Um, but he's the Burkhead is the guy that would play the backup role to Gillespie. He would step in to that role and this power back role for the new England Patriots. It has produced double digit rushing touchdowns in four of the past five seasons. The Patriots get inside the opponent's 10 yard line um, pretty much more than any team in the NFL uh, every year over the past five years or so they've been in the top four in terms of plays inside the 10 and they run the ball and usually about half of those plays so there is a lot of upside for whoever wins that Patriots power back role I think right now you really have to look at Burkhead and just take him as that value pick but even taking Gillisley where he's going because his ADP is dropping, taking Gillespie in the seventh and then cuffing him to Burkhead. I'm not usually a fan of cuffing, but if you get that, if you secure that backfield, it could have, I mean, we saw what it had last year, 300 touches and 18 touchdowns for LeGarrette Blunt. So I think you have to, to really look at that backfield as, 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 as one that could be extremely valuable. I agree. I, I like the idea of having them both, uh, but you know, you, it's, it's you usually don't want to use two running you know, running back picks on the same backfield, but this is, as you mentioned, one of the highest producing backfields uh, in the league year in year out. We know the offense is going to be great; they're going to be in the red zone all the time. So this is a situation where it's it's probably worth it. Uh, how about Denver? Uh, what do you think about C.J. Anderson? I know Jamal Charles is going to get an extended look uh, in the next preseason game to see how his knees. Uh, knees look. They still have Devontae Booker. Uh, they got Henderson, uh, the rookie who's kind of trending up. What do you think about the usage there, uh, Mike McCoy's offense? It, this is another one where I feel like it, what they said they want to do is get Charles 8 to 10 touches a game, get CJ uh, more involved in the passing game this season. So, I mean, theoretically, if Charles is going to be capped at 8 to 10 touches if he makes the team, that's probably solid for CJ. But Again, I just I don't know what to make of C.J. Anderson. He just seems to always be uh, kind of either banged up or just completely average when he's on the field. So I just don't really know where I'm at with him. I'm I'm fine with kind of taking a stab at him in the in the sixth round of, of drafts where he kind of falls to sometimes. But I'm kind of low key thinking that that this Henderson guy could end up taking over that backfield sooner than later. He's played really well in the preseason. Uh, Booker just seemed to lack the vision. I, I think his time might already be be passed, and you know he's hurt anyway. But I think I think Henderson is a really interesting uh, name to monitor as we as we go forward in the season, especially if if we see C.J. Anderson get banged up again like he usually does. Yeah, for what it's worth, uh, you know, heading into the early draft season, or even after. Danny Woodhead signed signed with the with the Ravens. I thought he might land here with 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 Denver, uh, playing for Mike McCoy, and then they went and signed uh, Jamal Charles, which I thought was sort of the backup plan, or maybe that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to fill that uh, Danny Woodhead role in the offense, and I still think this could all come together for Jamal Charles if he 
can prove that his knees are healthy. He said recently that he had absolutely no pain in the in the knees, and I don't know whether or not you believe him. He's been sitting out or being held out. Uh, so I guess we'll see how he does uh, in the next preseason game. Um, he's been cleared. He's been doing everything with the team and, and all that. So they kind of kept him on ice, uh, and we don't know for sure why unless they're just being really cautious with him. Uh, and he's somebody that I've been taking a lot of in the 13th round and uh, 14th round in, in MFL 10s, and maybe I'm going to regret that because I can't I can't get out of that pick in, in the in the best ball because if he gets cut, then all of a sudden his, maybe his career is over and I get nothing out of that pick. But um, it's that's definitely one to watch, and it'll be interesting to see how he does in the next game. Uh, you mentioned some concern with uh, Amir Abdullah in terms of his uh, usage and where he's being used, used on the field. He looks like a an upside play. Uh, uh, he did get quite a bit of usage in the one or two games that he played last year before the injury. Uh, Joe Holka loves him in terms of being uh, a good runner and having a lot of upside as a, with vision and and all that. But uh, you have some concerns about his uh, where he's being used on the field. Yeah, this is one of those situations where it, it's just reality and fantasy just don't match up for for him because he's. He is a great running back, very talented guy. But since offensive coordinator Jim Bob Cooter took over, Abdullah has averaged two targets per game, and he has only one of Detroit's 17 carries inside the 10-yard line while active. So that's that's not counting any time he missed. Only in games that he was active, um, he's only carried the ball once inside the, the 10. And then we already heard that, that Zach Zenner was running with the first-team goal line package in in camp so it seems to me that they have some aversion to using abdullah around the goal line and about 90 percent of of rushing touchdowns occur in the red zone so it's really difficult to kind of rely on abdullah's talent to produce touchdowns which is what you need in fantasy so i just don't know that he necessarily can provide value until he starts getting that goal line work now, at least maybe some receptions would do him well, but that will all depend on the health of Theo Riddick. Theo Riddick's not really been cleared for, for contact yet. He's had those double wrist injuries, but I would assume that if, if Riddick's healthy, that, that he'll still play that that passing down role. So it's just kind of a situation where in that fifth round, it's just I, – I just don't want to get caught really as much as in that in that in that area of the draft – taking stabs at these running backs because while I like the talent of all of them, I really can't bank on exactly what the workload is going to be like for any of them, whether it be Hyde or, or, or Spencer Ware or or even Ty Montgomery. I mean, so that's kind of why, as I mentioned earlier at the top of the show, I've been just kind of taking that wide receiver value that, that the draft gives you at that time and, and maybe even just kind of going with a couple upside picks a little earlier and, and later. Yeah, and Abdullah, as you mentioned, is getting it on two ends. He's getting it in the passing game, uh, being uh, his his workload being uh, kind of eaten into by uh, Theo Riddick, who's likely to continue to catch four or five passes per game. And then if this red zone thing continues with uh, Zach Center, then he won't have those scoring opportunities either. Uh, he did see quite a bit of work in the one or two games that he played. Um, so I don't know that workload's necessarily going to be a huge issue but that went really well for them that that game uh, i think it's 17 touches in uh, uh week one and but that was uh they, they were running all over uh the place in that game so uh not every game is going to be like that uh i'm moving on to seattle this is one of the more muddled uh, r- uh running back situations you have eddie lacy there 
Uh, we get an update on his weight every two or three weeks, which is nice to, to know how much he's weighing. Uh, I'm a fan of his talent when he's healthy and uh, relatively svelte, but Thomas Rawls is still there. He played really well two years ago. Didn't uh, wasn't as productive last year. They have CJ Procise there as well. Um, Rawls is kind of turning into a little bit of a sleeper right now because he is running ahead of Lacey or has been in the last couple of weeks of camp, um, and it appears that he might be in line first in line for those uh, carries on first and second down. What, what do you make of Rawls? Yeah, as I mentioned before, I think that we re- overreact just collectively to these somewhat of a small sample fluctuations in yards per carry. All the evidence suggests that they still view him as the lead back, at least for now. I mean, he's been running ahead of of Lacey all summer, and he's ran ahead of him in the preseason until, until this past week when he didn't play. So I think that the Lacey signing was kind of a a reaction to last year because we just saw them get decimated by injuries last year. And I mean, why not bring in a guy like Eddie Lacy who just bangs into people. And I think that, I think Seattle would be okay with giving Lacey 20 carries and Rawls five or, or they would be okay with giving Rawls 20 carries and Lacey five. So I can't necessarily sit here and say that I'm confident that Rawls is going to be the starter. and, And if he, even if he is for week one, that he's going to be all season long, but at the, at his ADP, I think, especially in a standard league, you don't have that much to lose by taking a stab at a guy who did lead the league in yards per carry two years ago on a team with a good defense that Russell Wilson being healthy again, I think that's underrated. We always talk about how the mobility of quarterbacks aids in the rushing lanes for running backs. I remember that used to be the case with Robert Griffin and Alfred Morris. So that's an underrated uh, factor in the decline of the Seahawks rushing game a season ago was the fact that Russell Wilson was hobbled for a large part of that season. So uh, just given the price tags of both where Lacey's going still higher than Rawls, I think you have to, I think you have to take Rawls as long as you can get him lower than Lacey. If, if his ADP creeps up above, then I think you go Lacey because I, I think there's a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, and both uh, both players fared pretty well in Joe Hoko's analysis. Uh, Rawls was actually a little bit higher in terms of his rushing percentile, so he, yeah, I think he favors he favors Rawls as well in that. And given the prices, I can't argue with you at all about uh, which one to target. Uh, let's talk about the receiver position a little bit. Um, we're gonna we're gonna go a little bit quicker through this position. T. Y. Hilton, uh, you mentioned that his numbers are down with Andrew Luck. I think that uh, makes a lot of sense. If you want the exact numbers, go go to the article and look it up. But I want to talk to you about Tyree Kill uh, and his upside. He's a he's a player that uh, Matt Harmon really thought fared well in his uh, reception perception analysis. He said he quote unquote wildly impressed as a route runner when he was given the opportunity to run routes. Uh, apparently uh, everything's going really good in, in camp. He's, he's jiving well with uh, Alex Smith. Uh, what, what's your take on Tyreek? Yeah, I think he has tremendous floor ceiling combo in fantasy because he's got, we know he has the talent for the ceiling. I mean, we essentially saw his ceiling last year. And of course we have to expect some natural regression from all those touchdowns, but he averaged 6.9 targets per game over the last eight weeks, had a catch rate right around 75%. And he doesn't get, he gets targeted very close to the line of scrimmage. So as long as he keeps improving as a route runner, I think you, he get, he has a pretty high floor if he's going to continue to get targeted like that. But if he 
running routes more and going downfield more. And we heard Alex Smith is actually going downfield a little more. We'll see if that carries over to the regular season. But I, I just think he has a, an amazing kind of floor ceiling combo that maybe people aren't quite some people just they're kind of hesitant there but I mean Tyreek Hill was a guy that I was just playing in DFS every week like there's certain guys when you just you just see them and you just know that they're just they're just really good and I think Hill is that player I wouldn't be I wouldn't hesitate to take him in a PPR league in the in the late third round even then that's pretty aggressive he's been going in the fourth but that third round is kind of a there's a swoon in talent there and you can make a case for a number of guys to sort of go there, but they all have big question marks around them. And Tyreek is, uh, was probably the best finish in terms of what, how much he scored last year. Uh, that's still available at that point in the draft. How about Allen Robinson with the uh, new play callers there in, in Jacksonville? Yeah. So they, Doug Marone, they're a lot more run heavy. They actually, somebody got quoted as saying in Jaguars camp that they just want to hide Blake Bortles by running on every play. So uh, we'll see what happens with Robinson. I think his targets are going to go down, but he might be okay just because a lot of his inefficiency last year came from the fact that on, on throws 16 yards downfield and more, he was just completely inefficient because Blake Bortles was inefficient. So we only caught 13 of 51 passes that traveled more than 15 yards downfield, no touchdowns on those throws. And he was among the league leaders in those stats the year before. And I think that's why we kind of saw the fluctuation. But at this point, it might not even be Bortles. It might be Chad Henney. So that actually might be a little bit of an improvement. I don't mind Robinson at where he's going in drafts, but I've kind of been looking just at wide receivers who tend to bust in the early rounds and it's a lot of times it's just you can chalk it up to bad QB play so he's a guy I'm not too excited about but I could at the same time I'm not I don't think you have to avoid him but it's just kind of it's kind of going fair fair yeah it seems like uh with Bortles is trending down there I wouldn't wouldn't be surprised at all if he doesn't start uh week one I don't know that Chad Henney's the answer I would love to see Tyrod Taylor land there uh, just to have a team that would be willing to build around his skill set and, uh, you know, the things that he could do for Robinson and Hearns and Marquise Lee. Uh, Demarius Thomas, we have, we have Trevor Simeon, likely the, the quarterback, uh, starter there. Uh, you know, I think that Emmanuel Sanders is a much better value in the fifth or sixth round than Demarius is in the third round. Um, we have Mike McCoy, uh, calling plays there. What do you make of Demarius Thomas and his value there in the third round? Yeah, I think he's more of a floor play in that third round just because he has such a high target share in that offense. They still haven't really found that third option to complement Sanders and Thomas. But when you look at what's been the reason for Thomas kind of being quiet these last few years, I mean, obviously not having Peyton Manning is the ultimate reason. But on a more specific level, he's his targets more than 15 yards down the field have dropped off significantly and especially with Simeon under control because Simeon's a little more of a conservative style passer that's why I was hoping for Demarius's value that Paxton Lynch actually won the job he's more willing to push the ball downfield from 2012 to 15 Thomas 25 percent of his targets over 15 yards downfield and he averaged 540 yards and three and a half touchdowns per season on those targets last season those numbers dipped to 300 yards and one touchdown on only 17 percent of his targets so that's really where the decline comes came from for the most part. I mean, bubble screens could in, 
crease this year, but I don't know if catching the ball two yards behind the line of scrimmage is necessarily going to move the needle for him. Uh, and you have a stat that uh, is good for Pierre Garcon, or you have an observation that you made about Kyle Shanahan with, with Pierre Garcon, and I don't know that I need any more reasons to get excited about Pierre Garcon and his draft value right now. I take him just about every sixth round I can in terms of uh, PPR drafts anyway. Uh, just look like, looks like he's going to be a high-volume guy there in San Francisco. What, what, what's your take on Garcon? Yeah, it seems like Kyle Shanahan is in the minority almost. I mean, it could just be of what's been going on around him, but Garcon has averaged 9.6 targets per game in, in his two seasons with Shanahan. Um, and then in the seasons before, leading up to it, he only averaged 7.8 targets per game. And in the seasons after he left Shanahan, 6.9 targets per game. So Shanahan seems to view him as this kind of offensive focal point in a way that for whatever reason, whether it just be better receivers on the team or not, that no other coach has really viewed Garcon as I mean even the contract they gave him you know 20 mil guaranteed this year and then they signed a bunch of role players around him they didn't really sign another legitimate um receiver they was just like a Aldrick Robinson Marquise Goodwin they got Curly to play the slot so I think Garcon is going to be the focal point of this offense Um, Brian Hoyer competent quarterback so I don't think I don't think there's too much downside there. I mean, the only thing is he might struggle for for touchdowns, but we know that that's one of those things that just has a lot of variance. So I mean, you're taking those targets there, and then you're hoping that instead of four touchdowns, maybe he lucks out and gets seven or eight. Definitely, and it's you know in my drafts, it's very difficult to pass on him there in the sixth round, even though there's there's often running back value at the same point in the draft. And I sometimes I even need a running, I, I need a running back there, but I decided to take Garcon as well, or instead is my wide receiver four, just because I love the, I love the value there. And that's in that sixth round. Um, another guy that I've been getting a lot of seventh, eighth round Cameron Meredith, uh, you have, uh, you're a little bit concerned about him, uh, his production there without, uh, Alshon Jeffrey. Yeah. Something interesting I noticed and it, it was that, okay. So Alshon, when he was in the lineup, Cameron Meredith was really actually kind of operating as the number one receiver almost. He was rivaling Jeffrey in terms of production. But when Jeffrey was out of the lineup, a.k.a. when Meredith was the defense's focus, uh, Meredith's targets per game dropped from 8.3 to 6.0. And this was when the Bears, they needed a number one receiver. I mean, Jeffrey was out. So the fact that his targets dropped... I know there was a bunch of different quarterback situations going on, but that kind of tells me that he didn't, he was struggling to get open a little bit and his yards per target dropped over that span, his catch rate dropped. So that's just something to keep in mind. You know, when these, when these receivers go from the number two option to the number one, cause I mean, if you're, if you're scheming against the bears last year, no matter how well Cameron Meredith is doing first and foremost, you're, you're taking away Alshon Jeffrey. You're taking away him deep. You're, you're, you're accounting for him at every part of the field. So with him out on the field, I think it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see how he, uh, adapts to this new role. I know he, he did really well in, in Matt Harmon's, uh, reception perception as well, but, um, I'm, I'm interested to see that. I don't, I don't mind taking him where he's going. I think he's still a fair value at, at his price as a number one wide receiver who flashed last year, but, um, just a little, just a little reason to, um, pump the brakes just a tiny bit. Yeah. And that's the middle of the seventh round for, for Cam Meredith. I've seen him last in the eighth, ninth round that, that really, I really like him there. Uh, seventh is a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit pricey for him, but uh, not terrible there if you need a, a third or fourth uh, receiver. 
How about Kenny Britt? You did a long article about him uh, after he signed with with Cleveland. I think you noted, noted that uh, uh, he was actually more productive than uh, Terrell Pryor on a per target basis. Um, he's going. I don't know. Uh, he's <laughs> pretty late still. I'll pick a hundred and hundred and six. You know, people aren't really buying into him, even though he posted pretty good numbers there with Jared Goff and maybe one of the worst. Uh, passing games in the in the history of the league. Uh, what do you what do you make of Britt? And uh, you know maybe you could touch on uh, Coleman as well. Yeah, I think Britt is a great value because, as you mentioned, he he outproduced Prior pretty significantly on a per target basis last year. With you probably can't get any worse at quarterback, and I don't think the Browns are going to be as bad as the Rams were at quarterback last year or on offense period. I mean, one thing to keep in mind, Britt does a lot of work downfield and the Browns have a really good offensive line. I know the quarterback situation is a little um, shaky right now, but Cody Kessler actually played pretty decently at quarterback last year. Terrell Pryor got his numbers. Terrell Pryor got 141 targets last year. Hugh Jackson wants Coleman to be to kind of step up and be that number one wide receiver, but the the team's actions suggest otherwise. They they let Pryor grow and then essentially signed Britt to to a, a deal that was more lucrative than the one Pryor got on the open market. So I'm pretty bullish on Britt. I, I don't think you have much to lose by taking him at the pick that he's going. I think worst comes to worst, you just get what you pay for, which is one of those wide receiver four types, but. I think he could surprise with either target volume or efficiency a little bit and, and kind of move up to that, 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 that low end wide receiver two or high end wide receiver three range. Yeah. Britt was uh, going behind Coleman, I think uh, several months ago, but now we're looking at uh, Britt's 46th off the board, pick one Oh six and Coleman's 47th off the board, pick one Oh seven. These are in MFL tens after August 1st. Uh, So this is the last uh, three weeks of, of data there. Uh, I'm going to ask you about one more receiver, uh, Randall Cobb. He's not a guy who's terribly high in my, uh, rankings. It's hard with the, with the, it's hard with the Patriots, hard with the Packers in terms of getting all these, uh, receivers, uh, enough fancy, uh, or just, just enough yards and touchdowns and catches to, to, to allow them to meet their current ADP. Uh, Cobb is going with pick 41, which seems to me like people are baking in uh, his history as a pretty productive fantasy receiver, even though he was uh, not very productive last year. You you feel like he has a chance to bounce back. Why do you, why do you think that? Randall Cobb is probably one of my favorite picks at that ADP range. I, I think I just took him today in an hour, four for four draft in like the set six twelve or something like that in MFL. I, I mean, at that, at that pick range, when you're, when you're looking at wide receivers and you ha- and your Garcons are off the board already, and maybe even your Meredith, um, I think you're, you're starting to, to get into that range where you're looking for upside. You're looking for players that if, if a few things break right, they could massively outproduce their ADP. So we already have seen Cobb produce that like high-end wide receiver two season. We've seen him have 12 touchdowns in a season. He's he's catching the ball from Aaron Rodgers. He's one of the the Packers throw the ball inside the five yard line more than any team in the league over the past two years. They throw a ton, and Cobb's touchdown rate on I mean it's just it's it's still always going to be a small sample when we're talking these these close distances. But 15 of 22 in his career, um, converting touchdowns inside the five from Aaron Rodgers. And that's better than Jordy Nelson. That's better than than Devontae Adams. And I think Cobb just really had a down season last year. But in one of the most recent games we've seen him play, he scored three touchdowns. He's caught a Hail Mary. I don't think it's out of the question that he and not Devontae Adams 
finishes with more fantasy points, even if all three of them are healthy. That's an interesting take because you have Adams going uh, 20 spots earlier, uh, 50, 50 picks earlier, 40 picks earlier. So uh, if you feel like that is a possibility, then I can see why you like Cobb uh, where you're taking him. And Adams is someone that I've just got ranked a little bit lower than I think the consensus. And I, it just looks, seems like there's got to be some touchdown regression for him. And that might lead to positive touchdown regression uh, for, for Randall Cobb. I think the dark horse there in that offense, uh, and that was not even uh, attempted at a pun, is the black unicorn, uh, uh, Martellus Bennett. I'd be really interested to see how he fares in this offense. And uh, it seems like he and Aaron Rodgers are, are building a nice rapport there. And whenever Rodgers has a nice um, uh, talent at tight end, he uses utilizes him. And that brings us to the tight end position. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Zach Ertz. As this whole thing with uh, Jordan Matthews being traded away, Nelson Aguilar possibly playing in the slot, that that looks like a downgrade in the slot for, for Philly. And, you know, I wouldn't expect Aguilar to approach the type of targets that Matthews saw there. Does that help uh, Zach Ertz there at the tight end position? Yeah, I think it helps him a lot because Zach Ertz was a guy who had actually really hilarious splits without Jordan Matthews. I think he had 31 targets in two games without Matthews last year, just like a quarter of his production, his fantasy production in those two games. And now you take Matthews out of the equation, that's probably taken seven, seven targets at least out of the equation that we're, that we're going to go to somebody and, and replacing them with a, a lower volume receiver. And we've seen Zach Ertz be a high volume receiver. And one thing that I think is also working in his favor is that Alshon Jeffries, and I know we, you know, you don't want to overrate the schedules at this time of the year, but I, I, I'm not looking at the defensive strength in total. I'm just looking at the cornerbacks that Alshon Jeffrey looks like he's going to face. And I mean, it's going to be Josh Norman and Akeem Tlaib and Patrick Peterson and, and Janoris Jenkins and, and Richard Sherman and just a lot of, a lot of top end cornerbacks in this league. So I think that that could kind of funnel the ball to Zach Ertz. Yeah, and Zach was kind of slipping down the, the rankings a little bit once they signed Alshon Jeffrey and Torrey Smith. And then now with Matthews uh, departing, it freed up some targets for him. And also, you know, you got to think about the upside there with Alshon Jeffrey not being uh, the most durable uh, player either. If he happens to miss four or five games, all of a sudden you have Zach Ertz likely to be the, the top targeted receiver in, in Philly without uh, Jeffrey in the lineup, I would think. Um, so. Uh, that's some upside there as well. Uh, you have, you're optimistic about Eric Ebron, and I, I was too prior to this uh, hamstring injury. He's been out for a lot of camp, and he's been someone that has had trouble staying completely healthy. But, uh, you know, if he can get healthy prior to week one, uh, he should be able to produce. What, what, what's your uh, reason for optimism about Eric Ebron? Well, what the Lions intended to do was they signed another tight end um, Darren fell so that they could run to some two tight end sets and kind of free up Ebron from having a block and essentially put him in that, that Anquan Bolden slot role. But as you mentioned, he's been on the shelf with the hamstring. I think that there's still reason for optimism. I mean, we've seen him, we've already seen him in somewhat of a high volume role. I mean, he had five or more catches in six of 13 games last season, just didn't get many red zone targets and therefore had only one touchdown on 61 catches. But I mean, seventh in catches, you know, tight end. I think that there's a lot of room to grow uh, for, for E Brown if he, if he's healthy. And we have a few more tight ends to talk about, but before we do that, I want to just mention that if you, if you like uh, Chris's work, if you like these podcasts that, 
I'm doing uh, these bonus podcasts. If you like my work and you appreciate the free uh, the free content on these uh, on this podcast and on Chris and TJ's podcast, I highly encourage you to buy a subscription. That's how we uh, make our money. Uh, that's how our salaries are paid. And uh, if you uh, use a code Paulson10 right now, you can get 10% off. Uh, any of this, any of the subs you want. We have the, the classic sub, uh, which is about thirty bucks. We have a pro sub, which includes a bunch of uh, draft software, auction software. Uh, that's uh, sixty, but you get five bucks off that, uh, six bucks off that. And then there's a DFS sub, and the DFS subs, uh, what is it, one hundred and twenty, Chris? Yes. Yeah. So that's uh, that. Actually, if you follow the, the optimal lineups, uh, has a pretty good chance of paying for itself. Uh, I think it's a, well worth the subscription. Uh, Chris and TJ coming on uh, uh, has really enhanced that part of the site. The DFS uh, site uh, part of the site has really taken off over the last uh, few years. And uh, I appreciate uh, Chris and TJ and all the hard work that they do. And of course, Josh Moore, who uh, put together the, uh, uh, the lineup optimizer. Uh, I use that every week when I do, do my lineups at DraftKings and, and FanDuel and the other sites. So uh, the last few tight ends here, you mentioned that there might be some TD regression uh, for, uh, for Kobe Fleener in that New Orleans offense. Uh, uh, why do you say that? Because of Drew Brees, essentially. I mean, Kobe Fleener, 16 red zone targets, only two touchdowns. Drew Brees has targeted his tight end uh, about at least 16 times um, every uh, every every year for for a while. Even even when he didn't have Jimmy Graham, he's been he's been targeting his tight end. They're just it's just just a team that they have a high touchdown potential because of Drew Brees, because of the defense, because they play in the dome. And it's Fleener's one of those picks where he's essentially, you get him outside the top 12, you're not really wasting much draft capital. I remember a couple years ago, I would just absentmindedly just take Ben Watson as my, you know, second or third tight end in, in MFL 10s, just because again, he was on the saints and it worked out. So I think you can't underestimate the regression for Kobe Fleener. And he was going as a six round pick last year. And now I think there might just be a little bit of an overcorrection. Um, so that's a situation that I'm, I'm attacking. That's a uh, post definition of the post hype sleeper where the, you, you draft a guy, you think he's going to be good. He doesn't uh, do as well as you had hoped. And then now everybody's sour on him because uh, he burned people and his ADP goes a little bit lower than uh, maybe what it should. Uh, how about uh, the Atlanta tight end, Austin Hooper? Uh, he seems to be kind of a sexy sleeper pick right now. Um, he's not going too early, though. If you're looking for, for some upside at the position, he had the nice Super Bowl uh, touchdown catch. Uh, why do you like him? Well, their new offensive coordinator, Steve Sarkeesian, one of his big changes is that he is going to use less of the fullback and he is going to flex the tight end out wide more. So those both of those things combined kind of would help Hooper to get on the field more. And Hooper did really well in terms of his efficiency um, with... In, in, in a very limited sample, um, but he was he was right there with with Gronk in terms of efficiency. Obviously, again, small sample, about I think twenty seven targets. But Hooper is a really good player, and we all we know that tight ends in their first years they come along slowly, and then they tend to to break out rather quickly after that. In most cases, unless your name is Eric Ebron. <laughs> so, you know, when I'm drafting tight ends, I'm trying to get, you know, by the time, uh, Delaney Walker, Zach Ertz, Kyle Rudolph, Martellus Bennett are off the board. I'm trying to get one of those. And then, you know, if I feel like uh, it's a good day for Andrew Luck's uh, shoulder, then Jack Doyle there at pick 116 is a very attractive. But, so, you know, the thing about waiting for the last guy 
in a tier is that sometimes you miss out on them and you have to have a, have a backup plan and, and Hooper is going 14th, uh, Fleener is going 15th. So, uh, you know, these are, these are players that are sort of fallback options that have some upside there uh, in the 12th or 11th, 12th round um, that uh, if, if you do miss out on the, the top few tiers that uh, you, you can get some production out of the position. Jason Witten's another guy uh, who can offer baseline production pretty much, uh, guaranteed uh as much as we can guarantee anything in fantasy football he's going 17th off the board but has finished in the top 11 i think 13 straight seasons um and then there's two uh kind of older guys i want to talk about here antonio gates um is one of them uh you you write that he's not really going away i, I think uh i don't know we probably agree that hunter henry is being overdrafted at the number 10 t- tight end off the board uh he has a lot of upside once uh, gates uh, retires, but I don't think Gates is going to just stay on the sideline while Hunter Henry catches all the touchdowns, is he? No, I mean, we just haven't seen any evidence of Gates going away yet. Gates' snap percentage last season was actually higher than it was the season before Henry got there. Gates' snap percentage down the stretch after the bye was higher with Henry in the lineup than it was before. So he was trending upwards in, in, in usage and snaps, not downwards. I think he's just going to be the same thing that he was last year. And, and yeah, that's not going to be Antonio Gates in his prime, but it's going to be a guy that he'll probably still be one of the most highly targeted red zone receivers on the charts, if not the highest target. And I think he's a great value in, what is he going in, like 20th or something like that? And yeah, 24th. I, yeah, like why not? You know, especially if you're going to platoon the position or something like that. And I found some really interesting data when I was uh, writing for my DFS playbook articles for the, each positional strategy, um, tight ends, we think of quarterbacks and kickers and defenses as these positions that do well at home or as favorites, but tight ends actually have the strongest home road splits of any position and the strongest favorite underdog splits of any position. And about two-thirds of their touchdown production comes either at home or as a favorite. So that's a situation where if you, if you just want to platoon guys, and there's so much variance anyway that you don't really have much to lose there's not much downside to just grabbing an Antonio Gates and grabbing somebody else maybe a Fleener and and these these tight ends it's one of my favorite strategies with these guys take the guys attached to the quarterbacks that throw touchdowns these like why like Andrew Luck's tight end is going outside the top 12 Matt Ryan's tight end is going outside the top 12 Dak Prescott's tight end is going outside the top 12 um Drew Brees' tight end is going outside the top 12 Philip Rivers' tight end is going outside the top 12. So take those guys. Yeah, I'm just looking at the ADP right now. Gates going uh, with the 24th, as the 24th tight end off the board. I'm pick 182. All three of the uh, rookie tight ends who uh, – rookie tight ends, anybody that listens knows that rookie tight ends have a real problem uh, scoring fantasy points as rookies. Um, they're all, all three of them are going before Antonio Gates, which I think, uh, you know, maybe it happens. Maybe, uh, Antonio Gates gets injured in week two and, uh, he's, he gets outscored by all these rookies, but I'd be, I'd be pretty surprised about that. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, uh, Julius Thomas, uh, rejoining Adam Gase in, in Miami. Uh, you write a little bit about his, uh, the plan you think that the, the Dolphins are going to install for him, uh, in the red zone. Yeah, I think they went out and got him specifically to be their top red zone target. They were very spread out in terms of how they distributed targets in the red zone last year. Six different players got between five and nine targets, but no one got double digits. And we know Jarvis Landry's not 
as good as he is, he's not necessarily a guy that you want to use in the red zone. I know Devontae Parker's getting some buzz. I would, I would think he would also be, be a factor in there, but uh, the Miami's OC Clyde Christensen essentially said, Hey, I think this guy could be a 10 touchdown guy. Um, Thomas's red zone rate, even if you take out Peyton Manning's, uh, the throws to him and just look at his red career rate without Peyton Manning, still pretty good. So I think Thomas is going to get a lot of chances in the red zone. It's just at tight end, especially when you're in any standard leagues, there's no real downside to kind of, uh, foregoing a few projected yards here and there for, for some touchdown upside because it's the touchdowns that are going to move the needle, not in an extra 10 yards per game. Yeah, and if you're wondering about Jay Cutler taking over as a quarterback there, when when he played for Adam Gase in 2015, uh, Martellus Bennett and Zach Miller, that was the year they both uh, you know had a pretty good year. Uh, 126 targets between the two of them, uh, 87 catches for 878 yards, and uh, eight touchdowns uh, combined for those two. Now that doesn't mean uh, Thomas is going to have that sort of year, but if he gets 60, 70, 80 percent of that, um, he, he could be in the tight end one uh, one conversation. So last. Last tight end I want to talk about, and I've, I've talked about him, I don't know how many straight pods, but Austin Safarian Jenkins. He's been uh, highly touted as uh, the, the Jets' best offensive player in camp, uh, OTAs before that. He's cleaned up his life. Uh, uh, he's quit drinking. He's lost 25, 33 pounds, depending on who you want to believe. Uh, has a ton of physical uh, skill. He's everything you want in terms of uh, a tight end, a receiving tight end. Uh, what, what do you make about the, the changes they made to the offense there? Yeah, they went from Chan Gailey, who just really didn't use the tight end position at all, only 26 catches combined for tight ends in two years under Gailey. And now you have uh, a new new offensive coordinator in in John Morton coming in, and they're going to use the tight end more conventionally. I think Austin Safari and Jenkins is more of an option. I think in, in deeper leagues and PPR leagues, somebody just to monitor because I don't, I don't like the touchdown upside, but I think he has a chance to get, significant target volume just given the mess that's um currently present in in that receiving court where you have a guy Robbie Anderson supposed to be the number one receiver he's not really cut out for that so I think that ASJ comes back he might be a guy that especially if Josh McCown is under center I mean Josh McCown definitely could he's he, he might be a bad quarterback but I mean he's competent at least he could probably get him the ball you know seven seven or so times a game I think McCown wasn't it McCown with Barnage that ha- kind of resurrected Barnage for a second there? Yeah, McCown's uh, McCown enhanced uh, Barnage's numbers that that year that they were playing together. Definitely. Yeah, so I mean, I think that's what you're kind of looking for with ASJ, kind of just that 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 target that high volume guy on a bad team probably won't expect too many touchdowns. And he has the two game suspension, is that right? Yeah, so he'll be back. I think week three, if in, unless anything goes wrong. Yeah, that's Miami. That's Jacksonville. Cleveland. Uh, the three games after he gets back. So he might be a sneaky DFS play for you, Chris. And week three, I'll give you one right off the bat. <laughs> I'll give you a week three DFS uh, sneaky oh, play. Uh, he'll be, he'll probably be minimum, uh, minimum priced. Uh, and he's also a player to, to keep in mind if you're in one of these uh, TE premium point per 1.5 per reception type leagues, because uh, those are leagues where you, you want to draft probably more than one one tight end and and have a backup or maybe have two backups with some upside and I think he's definitely uh, has some upside there uh, with the, on a bad team with the Jets. I mean, there's so many targets there up for grabs and and from from all accounts, he's looked really really good. Uh, so, Chris, uh, thanks for being number ten in the in the draft uh, strategy series. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks a lot, John. It was great to be here. 
All right, let's have a great year at 444. Uh, remember to go out and get your sub if you're a listener uh, to help support the site, help uh, support the work that I and Chris and TJ and Josh and Luis all do. Uh, we really appreciate your business, and uh, uh, we'll see you next time on 444's Most Accurate Podcast.